You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning for today's episode, there will be several passing references to sexual violence against women. Listener discretion is advised. In a small, rarely talked about African kingdom, surrounding the king is an elite and highly trained corps of bodyguards. Armed with staffs and spears, they command respect everywhere they go. And they're all women. This isn't Wakanda and the Dora Milaje. This is Benin, the western neighbor of Nigeria, and the Dahomey Amazons. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Life in Baldakhand, Uttar Pradesh, India is, delicately put, not easy. Summers bring intense heat and drought. 40% of the population lives below the poverty line. Nearly 50% of women never learn to read. The caste system is in full effect, with a glut of people in the Dalit, or untouchable, caste. Girls are married by age 12, female infanticide is common, and sexual abuse is rampant. Domestic violence is just a part of life, because abusers never face consequences. Uttar Pradesh as a whole ranks as one of the most unsafe provinces for women in the country, with over 1,900 cases of rape, 8,000 cases of kidnapping, and over 2,000 cases of dowry death, women murdered or driven to suicide over disputes of their dowry, and that's only in one year. It's against this backdrop that one woman took up conspicuous tools to fight back. A pink sari and a big stick. Sampat Pal Devi was married at the age of 12 and soon had five children to try to support selling vegetables. One day in 2006, she overheard a neighbor beating his wife and tried to stop him. She wasn't strong enough to stop him herself, so she gathered some other women from nearby, and together they gave the man a sound beating. News of Devi's actions quickly spread. A woman in a pink sari is making trouble. That emboldened Devi not only to continue but to gather more women. Many more. Eventually over 400,000. This female vigilante group is called the Gulabi Gang. Gulabi is Hindi for pink, and the women all wear pink saris, as Devi did that first night. Today, women as young as 16 and as old as 60 each receive a pink sari upon initiation. So much cooler than anything Mary Kay ever gave out and a long bamboo stick called a lathi. In a society that so often silences women, Devi and the other Gulabi women are protecting themselves and others. When a woman does go to the police after an act of violence, they ignore her. I don't mean they patronize her and do nothing with her case, as is so sadly common in the West. They just pretend there's no one standing in front of them. The justice system in Bukalhand is dysfunctional and unreliable, says journalist and author of Pink Sari Revolution, Amanda Kahn. Kahn says that Devi's goal of gender equality and freedom has found success 
due to her bold and creative strategies, and that has further empowered the women there. The Gulabi Gang has stepped into the vacuum left by the state and offers an alternative means of attaining justice. When word of abuse reaches the Gulabi Gang, they confront the abuser to try to make him face justice or change his ways. If that fails, which is often, out come the Lathis. You might not agree with the idea of addressing violence with yet more violence, but the Gulabi Gang could be the difference between life and death for many women. If we find the culprit, Devi says, we thrash him black and blue so he dare not attempt to do wrong to any woman or girl again. We don't fear the police or any authority because we fight for the truth. The Gulabi Gang fights not only sexual and domestic abuse, but child marriage and even fights for female education. In 2007, an untouchable woman was sexually assaulted by a man of a higher caste, and nothing was done. The villagers and members of her caste protested, and many of them were put in prison for it. The Gulabi Gang charged the police station to free the protesters and demanded that the case be brought against the rapist. When the policeman in charge refused, they gave him a taste of what they do to men who abuse women. I don't want you to think that they go straight for the nuclear option. The Gulabi Gang also uses nonviolent tactics like marches and sit-ins, and of course, publicly shaming the offenders. And it's not just female-based issues either, but basic rights for even the poorest people. In 2007, Devi learned that government-run shops, which are a bit like welfare and food banks, were not distributing food and grain to the poor villagers as they were supposed to. The Gulabi actually went undercover to collect evidence on them. The Gulabi found that the grain that was supposed to be given to the poor was being taken to street markets for sale. They turned this evidence over to the authorities, who did nothing. Their work wasn't in vain, though, because it had bolstered and spread their reputation. Beating up one of the corrupt cops probably didn't hurt either. In 2008, they stormed a power company office in the Banda district. Officials there had been shutting off power to extort bribes from people. The Gulabi gang were able to force them to turn the power back on. Men who commit these atrocities should be beaten by women, says Devi. I have seen many changes in our area. Awareness is growing, and we are seeing more justice. It is always challenging to fight victim cases, but we persevere. And Devi isn't the only strong woman from that part of India. In fact, if you Google the phrase female freedom fighter, almost all of the results are Indian. Uttar Pradesh and neighboring Madhya Pradesh have also given the world Princess Jansi Kirani, who revolted against the colonial rule of Britain and Fulan Devi, who sought revenge against her rapists by turning into a bandit. Since 2013 in Mexico, a woman has gone to even greater lengths to avenge women abused and murdered by men. She is called Diana, the hunter of bus drivers. And to hear about her, you'll have to sign up over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where, for the duration of the COVID crisis, all levels of membership are receiving all rewards. In northern Iraq and into Turkey and Syria live the Yazidi people, probably about half a million or so, though it's hard to say with certainty. They tend not to marry outside of their community and their faith, which has some aspects of Christianity and Islam, but is a distinct religion all its own. 
They worship Maluktos, a peacock angel that God appointed to watch humanity. Absolutely Google the phrase peacock angel. You will not be disappointed. If the Yazidi were animals, you would say that they have one natural predator, Isis. The Islamic State called them devil worshippers when they began attacking the Yazidi town of Sinjar in 2014. Isis killed an estimated 5,000 men and boys and took at least as many women and girls to be sold as sex slaves. Many of the Yazidi fled into the mountains with the terrorists close on their heels. Some people were abandoned by their families so they wouldn't slow the family down. They had no supplies, and many feared they would starve to death before it was safe to come down. And ISIS mined the area, so even if they could come down, they couldn't return home. One woman who escaped the terrorists and survived the mountain was well known in Sinjar. 36-year-old Katun Kaider was a singer and musician, playing weddings and festivals, but after all that she witnessed, she put down her timbre and picked up a gun. I was famous in many places, but I left all of that after what happened, and I became a soldier. After her escape, Kaider wanted to fight back. This wasn't just a crime against humanity, but a crime against women, and she refused to be a victim. She would make her stand with the first all-female Yazidi fighting battalion. With so many women having lost family, including their own children, and some having been captured and escaped, there was no shortage of volunteers. Some 1,700 women would join Kaider. They called themselves the Sun Ladies. The battalion received weapons, training, and support from the semi-autonomous government of Kurdistan in northern Iraq. The Sun Ladies were the first female battalion of the Kurdish regional army, the Peshmerga, which translates to those who face death. It's an enormous transition for these women. The Yazidi are a strictly patriarchal society. So, with only six weeks of training, they had gone from homemakers to soldiers. One of the Sun Ladies was Kaider's little sister, Aliyah, 21 years old when this happened. I knew many girls who were taken by ISIS, many of my school friends. Some of them are still captured. If they knew about weapons, they might have escaped from ISIS. The sisters come from a military family. Their father and grandfather were soldiers, and their brother is also in the Peshmerga. Katun had chosen a civilian life for herself prior to the attack, but Aliyah had always wanted to be a fighter, to be like her older brother. The Yazidi have had to fight for as long as any of them can remember, constantly being under siege from one side or another, be they terrorists or governments, or being pinned in the crossfire of other people's conflicts. The Yazidi count over 70 separate massacres in their history. Part of Kaider's motivation for starting her battalion was not just revenge, but to stop things like the ISIS attack from happening again. There are no recent reports of how the Kaider sisters and the Sun Ladies are doing, but at least that means there is no news of them having been wiped out, so I'll take it. If you do come across anything less than, say, three or four years old, definitely post it to social media and tag me, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. Now, women have been involved with military action in one capacity or another as long as there has been military action. With the exception of Russia in World War II, which you can read about in the Your Brain on Facts book, 
And thank you to the four people who have left reviews. Y'all who are reading it, please keep them coming. Women weren't allowed into combat roles in modern militaries until relatively recently and in limited capacities. Special forces? Forget about it. It was only this year that the first woman became a Green Beret. But leave it to a Scandinavian country to lead the way. In 2014, Norway formed the Jorgentroppen, or the Hunter Troop, the modern world's first all-female special forces. Now, just because the unit is for women doesn't mean it's any easier. Of the 317 candidates who tried for placement the first year, 88 made it through the selection course, and of those, 13 made it through the training, a whopping 4%. The idea for the unit began in 2013 under the codename Tundra. It was the brainchild of a pair of brothers, the current and former head of the Armed Forces Special Command, Eric and Froda Christofferson. They realized there was a chink in the global war on terror. Afghan women would not speak to male soldiers. Since women are half the population, this means potentially missing out on half of the available intelligence. Norway's response was to create a unit that could interact with local women while operating at an elite level. Thus, the Jurgentroppen. Candidates are selected based on attitude and physical fitness, readiness for all situations, so no being afraid of water or heights, and they have to survive Hell Week, which includes, among other things, long marches over several days with little time to rest and minimal food and water. If you're still in at that point, you face a 10-month training program that includes patrol, standard survival, winter survival, shooting, communications, medical, counterterrorism, parachuting, close combat, vehicles, and urban reconnaissance. Colonel Christofferson remarked that the Jurgen Tropen have displayed superior shooting and observational skills, and one male Special Forces soldier said, a lot of the time, they shoot better than the guys. To complete the program, candidates must be able to march 9 miles or 15 kilometers through a forest with 50 pounds or 22 kilos of gear in under 2 hours and 15 minutes. They have to do 50 sit-ups, 6 pull-ups, and 40 push-ups in 2-minute intervals, the same number of sit-ups and almost as many push-ups as are required for U.S. Navy SEALs. They have to run 2 miles or 3 kilometers and swim a quarter of a mile or 400 meters in under 11 minutes, and they have to stay submerged for the first 25 meters. It's like the presidential fitness test from my nightmares. I can walk like a mile with my phone and wallet, and that's about it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. 
This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. In addition to proving themselves physically, the Jurgen Tropper must also prove themselves mentally. They spend a year learning to stay on mission despite food deprivation, sleep deprivation, long marches through the snow, you name it. Human beings are not good at dealing with being cold, tired, and hungry, but that can't be allowed to impact a mission. Speaking of missions, the Jurgen Tropen have gone on none, at least as far as the most recent article on them reports. But they're special forces, after all. It's not like they're going to send out a press release every time they go on a mission. I have been on two personal missions lately. One is that I am pivoting to being a voice actor. Can't imagine where I got that idea. Because I'm just getting started, I need to build up a portfolio. So if any of my gentle listeners have a business that needs voiceover work, whether it's for an explainer video, e-learning, phone system, you name it, email me at yourbrainonfacts at gmail.com and I'll give you my special YBOF listener rate. The other mission I have been on was to guest star on 50 different podcasts to promote the book, naturally. But that also means that I have gotten to invite lots of great guests onto my show, so, to tell you about another amazing all-female group, please welcome Katie and Allie from Her Story on the Rocks. Hi, Your Brain on Facts. I'm Katie. And I'm Allie. And we are from the podcast Her Story on the Rocks, where we talk about famous women from history. We talk about good women, bad women, fictional women, and non-fictional women from all times and places, because women have nuance. And today, we are here to tell you about an incredible group of women who are on the rise to try and combat an environment that is on the decline. But first, we need to tell you about the Black Rhino, which is the smaller of the two African rhinos. It became classified as critically endangered in 2013. Rhinos, along with elephants, zebras, lions, and chimpanzees, are just some of the African animals that saw massive declines in population during the 20th century. Specifically, from 1960 to 1995, during the rise in popularity of big game hunting, we saw a startling 98% decrease in rhino populations. There are only between 2,500 and 4,800 rhinos left in the world. With all that we have learned about the environment and all of the protected wildlife areas that have popped up in Africa, why is the rhino population decline still an issue today? Their horns aren't even ivory like elephant tusks. Well, poachers have a field day with rhino horns. They are highly prized, estimated to fetch up to $60,000 per kilo on the black market, which makes it more valuable than gold, oil, and cocaine. But what is surprising is that rhino horn is composed mainly of keratin, the same component as in human fingernails. So why is it so expensive? Rhino horn is considered to be a valuable ingredient in some forms of traditional Asian medicine. The supposed medicinal benefits of rhino horn include 
the ability to cure typhoid fever, boils, and poisoning. The horn is even used as an aphrodisiac. None of these claims, however, are backed up by hard evidence. Therefore, you can get the same health benefits by chewing on your fingernails, which is a habit that about 20 to 30% of people on Earth have anyway. And this is where the idea for the Black Mambas came from. In 2013, the same year that the Black Rhino was first listed as critically endangered, Craig Spencer, the head warden of a nature reserve, and Amy Clark from Transfrontier Africa decided they needed more feet on the ground and more eyes on rhinos. The group started with only six young women, but now the group has almost 30 members. For many of the young girls, it's their first job out of high school, and people in the community were skeptical of their abilities at first, but nobody is skeptical anymore. Each girl receives three months of training, which includes physical exercise and classroom work. The last month, though, is the most rigorous, focusing on survival tactics in the bush, building shelter, and functioning without food or water. The extensive training is part of why there have been no casualties on the job, despite regularly facing serious peril. Each member spends a total of 21 days living on the reserve to create a visible police presence. The women are outfitted in camouflage ranger uniforms and trained in tracking and combat. They patrol on foot or by jeep four hours at dawn and four hours at dusk in search of snares, human tracks, sounds of gunshots, and other suspicious activity. The Black Mambas have shut down five poaching camps and have reduced snaring by 76%. There was even a 10-month period during 2015 when no rhinos were poached at all. Rhinos are one of the oldest groups of mammals that play an important role in their habitats in African countries. The protection of black rhinos creates large blocks of land for conservation purposes that also benefits other large species, including elephants. To date, the Black Mamba's anti-poaching unit has won a Champions of Earth Award from the United Nations Environmental Program. This has been a short story from Her Story on the Rocks podcast about awesome women doing awesome things. If you want to learn more, you can find our podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And never forget that well-behaved women rarely make history. Bye, Moxie. Thanks, ladies. Now, the Black Mambas were the first all-female anti-poaching unit, but they aren't the only one. In Zimbabwe's Fundundu wildlife area, a 115-square-mile former trophy hunting tract, are the Akashinga, the brave ones. It's a program that not only saves animals, but in many cases, it saves the women, too. The Akashinga are one arm of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. The IAPF was founded by an Australian man, Damien Mander. Mander was an Army Special Forces sniper who served 12 tours in Iraq. 12. All that time in combat, then it's like, okay, go back to civilian life. It's a hard thing to just switch off. But Mander was able to find a way to channel his skill and do good in the world. He moved to Zimbabwe and formed an anti-poaching squad but the initial results were middling at best. So Mander changed his strategy. He fired the men and began training female rangers, specifically recruiting local women who had had a raw deal in life. After all, who better to defend the threatened and the helpless 
than someone who knows what that feels like. 36 women started our training, modeled on our special forces training, and we pushed them hard, much harder than any training we do with the men, Mander explains. Only three dropped out. I couldn't believe it. Years earlier, Mander ran a similar course with 189 men. At the end of day one, all but three of them had quit. So that's 8% of the women quitting versus 98% of the men. Just saying. Mander tried to push the recruits to their limits. He tried to put them through hell, but as he got to know them, he found out they'd already been. One woman's husband left her with one child and another in carry and no way to support them. Another woman's husband would beat her so badly she couldn't stand up afterward. A woman in her early 20s was raped by a neighbor at 17 and became pregnant. Then the rapist's mother took her child to raise and hasn't let her have any contact with it. Sleeping in the mud is nothing compared to that. From the very first day of the women's training, Mander saw that he had something very special happening. He realized that the women were the missing link to a successful conservation program. For most of the Akashinga, being a ranger is the first job they've ever had outside of the home. To the surprise of no one, the community was not super gung-ho on the idea. The men in their villages harassed, ridiculed, and belittled them. But the Akashinga don't care. They care about the animals. Like a leopard killed by a group of men who claimed that it attacked them and they had to kill it in self-defense. The rangers could tell from the superficial nature of the men's wounds and the fact that a leopard pelt and teeth are worth more than a month's wages, that they were lying. There were other benefits that Mander couldn't have anticipated. The Akashinga seem impervious to bribes and corruption. They spend their pay in their communities. A female salary earner in the Pondudu region generally spends 90% of their pay on their family, as opposed to 35% by males. So almost as soon as the program started, it was contributing more to the community's economy than the fees collected from trophy hunters. When the Akashinga make arrests, they de-escalate the situation, rather than letting things become violent. And then there is their devotion to the animals. As one ranger put it, female rangers are superior to male rangers because women have a motherly heart. And there is, let's face it, the stereotypical tendency of women to talk, especially in a rural setting where there's not a lot going on. Somebody finding a nefarious way to make money is some juicy gossip, and the Akashinga have ears in all the villages to catch it. The success of the Akashinga illuminates their key principle to the community, that wildlife is worth more to them alive than it is dead to the poachers. The Akashinga live together in a hilltop camp with a panoramic view of the area, and take their meals together, a sustainable, cruelty-free, but calorie-rich vegan diet crafted by a chef hired by Mander. On one morning, Mander briefs them on two raids scheduled for that night. One on the compound of a man suspected of having illegal guns for hunting, and the other on the home of a suspected poacher that's been trying to sell a leopard skin. They spend the day in drills, ensuring that each ranger knows her position. Then Mander gets behind the wheel of the truck, four rangers jump in the back with a local police officer who will oversee the raid, and the team sets off 
In the single-digit hours of morning, the Akashinga approached the first target. Mander speeds into the compound, and the rangers leap out and take up their positions. One knocks on the front door. The suspect eventually allows them inside, where they find several pelts from a species of small antelope. The man is handcuffed and loaded into the truck without incident. One target down, one more to go. The Akashinga have been up for more than 24 hours now, but we are not tired, one told the reporter riding with them. We don't tire until our job is done. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to the Dahomey Amazons, so named by a European explorer, naturally, because he reminded them of the Amazon women of Greek legend, as all warrior women seem to do. The Corps began with skilled hunters, and then the Ahosi were added, the third-tier wives of the king. Some women were forced to join, either because they were slaves or by their husband or father, but many women joined voluntarily. They guarded the king of Benin for nearly 300 years, growing to number some 6,000 before the last king was overthrown by France in 1894. Remember, you can find all of the sources and the script for the show at Your Brain on Facts. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. And seriously, if anyone needs any voiceover work recorded, email me at yourbrainonfacts at gmail.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.